Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Well, welcome back to season two. Catherine, you've pulled some amazing guests for us this season. Oh, it's so hard to even summarize them. We have the Columbine High School principal who was there the day of the shooting, a couple of parents whose children were killed in the Parkland shooting in Florida, a woman, extraordinary woman, who stopped a shooter before he fired. It's going to be an exciting season. I'm so excited for this season. And I have to say, even in edit, I'm still emotional listening to the the stories. They will stay with you. Can you tell us a bit about who's joining us later in this episode? Yeah, his name is Dennis Yonke. He's got 21 years of experience as a law enforcement officer. And we wanted to talk about the what I think of as kind of a little bit of the origin story for these types of targeted violence, a shooting that occurred at the University of Texas. So I thought Dennis could join us to maybe give everybody a little bit of inside baseball on what it's like for law enforcement. So Catherine, tell me, why did you choose Texas Towers as the first episode of this season? I thought it would be really good to start the season with an understanding of kind of where we started and how far we've come. And we're firing up the time machine for this one because the University of Texas or Texas Towers shooting, as it's known, happened way back in 1966. So Catherine, let's get into it. What can you tell me about the incident? Just to give everybody a picture, it's a gorgeous campus in Austin, Texas. It's a big old campus with beautiful traditional stone buildings and just a lovely atmosphere. But just after night on August 1st, 1966, a man in Austin, Texas stabbed his mother to death. And then he found his wife and he did the same thing. Later, we found he didn't want them to go through what they were going to go through publicly and because that's this. And imagine, it's 56 years ago. It's hard to believe, 56 years ago. But on that day, after, after he killed his mother and his wife, he went out and bought an M1 carbine rifle at a hardware store and then four more carbines at a gun store and then a shotgun at a Sears hardware store. And then he bought all kinds of ammunition and magazines, and he packed all of them up with food and water and other supplies that he had, and he headed to the University of Texas campus. And he used some false credentials and a lot of lies to get to the point where he could park where he wanted to park, pretty close to this observation tower that's in the campus. He got into the elevator of the observation tower, 
in the center campus. And along the way, he hauled all of this stuff in a cart that he'd purchased. And as he encountered different people in the tower, he shot them. He killed three people, badly injured two others. One was a family who was visiting. And just before noon, he climbed to the top of this big observation tower, 230 feet above ground. In addition to that, I've been out there and walked that plaza and been in the tower. It's at the top of a hill. So it's even higher when you look down from there. It's a wide plaza around it. He had seven firearms with him, a machete. And for the next 90 minutes, 96 minutes total, he fired at people down below. Police are called four minutes into it. Think back to 1966. There wasn't any way for people to hear these things unless something came out over the radio, right? And no cell phones, obviously, in 1966. So somebody's got to get to a landline and call within four minutes. Exactly, exactly. You're right. As a listener, you have to really transport your mind back to what it was like in 1966. Yeah. So it takes four minutes for police to get called because people had to get to a hardline phone. And there also was a sense of confusion and kind of disbelief. There were people who saw people actually falling on the big cement plaza around the observation deck. People saw them falling and thought it was like theater, thought it was like Mm -hmm. war protests or something like that back in the 60s. They didn't understand that what was even happening. Now, a patrolman arrives first, and he's immediately shot. I mean, immediately. He shows up. He's got a handgun on his waist. He doesn't even know where the sounds are coming from. Gosh. There's an officer. His name is Houston McCoy. He's only 26 years old. He hears about the shooting on his car radio. And he's looking for a way to get into the tower. And a student he knows says to him, hey, I have a rifle at home. You want to come with me and we'll go get it? What? (laughs) The officer's turned up with what weapon? Anything? Or nothing? Handgun. A handgun. Handgun. Okay. And he can tell that he needs something a bit more firepower. Right. He knows that somebody's shooting from a tower, it seems. Wow. And one of the students says, hey, I've got a hunting rifle at home. We want to go get it. And they hop in his car and go off to go get it. This is the position that police and civilians are in at the time. And presumably the student lived not far away because that was a brave call mm -hmm. to, to move away from the scene as an officer, surely. You know, I think as a law enforcement officer, you really have to say, what can I do in this situation? And I think he recognized immediately. He may not have even known the other officer had already been shot. Very limited radio communications, certainly an unusual situation that they're facing. Mm -hmm. And so he not only goes off, but I'll tell you what, uh, there were other people on the campus who heard this and appreciated the gravity of it. And they too went home to get their deer rifles. Wow. And that's incredible. In fact, began returning fire to the top of the tower trying to hit this guy. Right, because you said it's 96 minutes, so that's a long time. Mm -hmm. So there's an 18-year-old student and her boyfriend walking across campus. They've gotten out of class a little bit early. They're the very first two people shot. She is eight months pregnant plus, and her child is expected to be delivered any day. Um, Their shot on the plaza is a big plaza, as I mentioned, and the shooter is shooting at anybody who goes by. Mm. So... They lay on the pavement for an hour. Oh, no. She's pregnant and bleeding before three male students run out there bravely and retrieve them. So she gets shot. She lays on the pavement. And I'm going to tell you, she lost that child. She survived. But I just wanted to tell you that mm. um, each victim is an individual. Mm. And in her case, you know, she lost a child. That's just tragic. So five blocks away, 
there were two people shot. This is how far this guy could shoot. 460 meters, wow. about 500 yards. Yeah. Right. So th- people thought they were out of range. Mm-hmm. They could hear it. They could see it. But they weren't out of range because he was shooting with a rifle. So what happens is there, this man is shooting, shooting, shooting. So there are three men. One is in public safety. One is an officer. And one is a civilian. And that civilian has had some military experience. So they're joined by another officer. They hear about the shooting on the news. They come to the campus to direct traffic. That's what the officer was sent there for. Instead, he goes to the tower and he starts to climb up the tower with the other three individuals to get to the 27th floor. 27th now that puts floor. it in perspective, 27 floors. Yeah, that is high. Is it just purely an observation tower? So yes. Right. Yes. There, it's a pretty building. Think of like a campus center mm-hmm. sort of building. Mm-hmm. And then it also has this observation tower because it's one of the highest spots on the campus. Right. And he, he would get himself to a particular spot where there was an elevator and there was a checkpoint and he killed the woman at the checkpoint. And then he'd get to the next point and he'd kill the next person at the checkpoint. He ran into a family walking up and down the stairs. He killed a number of the family. When you look at the numbers of what happened at the end and how many people died in this situation, I think it's important to remember that before he made it to the top, there were five people dead already. Mm -hmm. So the officers and the civilians, they are going to try to get to the top of the tower. And what they're faced with is people shooting back at them, right? The subject, he knows that there might be somebody coming and they're doing what law enforcement knows how to do in order to stack and move up and cover. But they're also dealing with something that they didn't expect because what did I just tell you about the students and the deer rifles? Oh my God, the students are shooting at the tower while the police are trying to get into the tower. Right. So there's a lot of shooting going on with no understanding. No one knows where the rounds are coming from whether they should duck or not. But I will say that the police chief later said that the gunfire from down below really helped to suppress the shooter's ability to move around. Mm -hmm. And so he said he thought that there were probably less victims because the shooter had to start ducking down more because he was concerned about getting shot up above. And what happened is that the law enforcement officers and the civilian, they managed to get into the top of the tower. And it's, if you've ever been in one of those towers where there's an elevator shaft in the middle or a stairway in the middle, and then just like a little perimeter so you can walk around the outside. So the officers came up, the subject was on one of the four sides, and the civilian turned right, the two officers turned left. And when the civilian fired a shot down one direction, it was a distraction for the shooter, and they were able to shoot and kill the shooter. But In all, there were 16 more people shot and killed. That's when we count that eight-month-old fetus of the survivor who was Claire Wilson, Mm -hmm. which they did not count the child at the time. Today, some people would count that as a child, but that she was about two weeks away from delivery at the time. And now I will say this, somebody who was shot died 30 years later. His death is charged to this shooter because he would not have had the injuries that he had and died in 2001. No, that's a lot of numbers. But in all, what I want to say is... You know, there were 39 people who were taken to one hospital, a tremendous trauma on a hospital that had never seen anything Mm. like that before. And most of the people really who died just simply bled out. Nobody had had any training in how to stop bleeding. I recall you said police took their first call at four minutes. And I know from past episodes, nowadays, police take their first calls within seconds of a shooting very often. And also, I think the length of time, a lot of these incidents 
only lasts sort of five minutes on average or so, and this lasts for 96 minutes. Is that because the response methods have evolved to be more fast and efficient? I'd love to say yes, but it's really the shooter who sometimes controls the timing. Last season, we talked about the Navy Yard shooting here in Washington, D.C., and that shooting went on for a similar amount of time, about an hour and a half. And that was because the shooter was able to move freely through a building. And I think in this case, we had a shooter who was high in a tower. Law enforcement wasn't able to get to them, even if law enforcement had been differently equipped. And that makes a difference. How different was it for the victims back then? Because, you know, 1966... Mental health wasn't such a bandied around word. Right. I'm so glad you brought that up. Uh, Mental wellness, I like to call it. The 18-year-old girl who was expecting and was the first person shot, her name was Claire. She was in the hospital for seven weeks. She had five surgeries. And when she was released so many weeks later, she was diagnosed with PTSD. Mm. How many years later, do you think? I've given you the years. I've told you not your months. How many years later? Wow. I mean, 1966. I don't even know if PTSD was even diagnosed. Maybe, I don't know, 20, 10? Yeah. 10 years later. Wow. 10 years after the shooting. Imagine she's 28 years old. She's lived with the surgeries, all the recovery, very little guidance and help after that something that she couldn't talk about. And it's the victims of crimes. It was so cloaked in silence and shame. She did one interview like 20 years later, and she said, so much of what has happened to me was still a mystery. Every detail that reveals itself. There was an interview done with civilian went to the top of the tower. And that was in part some of the first information she really found out that was accurate about the shooting. But I'll tell you that 45 years after 45 years after she was shot, she met two of the people who helped drag her off the campus. That was the first time. Oh, wow. What an experience mm-hmm. what to be a fly on the wall. Right. She said it was very cathartic. It was very healing. But how sad that it took her whole lifetime to get that. Definitely. That just wouldn't happen now, would it? No, I don't think so. Then there's a huge system in place here in the United States through the Department of Justice for Victims and Services. You know, in Texas, when this shooting occurred in 1966, the first memorial went up in 1999. Like, how is that even possible that oh it took God. it took that many years for them to put a memorial up? Do you think, uh, Catherine, that's partly because the shooter had been killed and it was job done? I think so. I think people don't want to remember. They think, oh, that's a sad reminder to have a plaque up there. If you go to Columbine High School and you go to the back of the high school and you look up the hill, you will see a huge memorial. It's gorgeous and very meaningful, very gripping, and has a spot for every student who was killed every and the teacher who was killed at Columbine High School. But those kinds of memorials just were never put up back then. We wanted to give you the inside baseball on how the impact of this historic shooting actually echoes right through to law enforcement training today. So we sat down virtually, as you do these days, with Dennis Yonke. I'm currently a sergeant with the Hennepin County Sheriff's Office based out of Minneapolis, Minnesota in my 21st year on duty there. Right now I run our day-to-day operations for our criminal intelligence division. My background with this topic is in 2014, I was uh, on a fellowship with the FBI at FBI headquarters assigned to the active shooter initiative, uh, which Kate ran. I think it's important for us to tell the story of how police have evolved 
And I think that how police response has evolved really, maybe in the Grimm's version, starts with Texas Towers. We know it's not such a linear line, but to me, Texas Towers was really the initial response. So I wondered if you thought that Texas Towers was really the the start. Yeah, August 1st of 1966. It kind of is one of the benchmarks in active shooters in U.S. history, as far as it made law enforcement change tactics or start to think about changing tactics, because it's something we hadn't really seen before. I'm sure if you look deeper into history, maybe there were, but I think the Texas Towers really illustrated the need for different tactics for law enforcement. Dennis, you studied this area quite a bit. What is it that you think about the Texas Towers incident that rattled law enforcement? I would say all of these, they're all unique in themselves, but he was a former Marine using tactics that maybe he had acquired in the military to basically get into the tower, get the higher ground and making it very challenging for law enforcement to respond to it, to stop his killing spree. As a longtime law enforcement officer, Dennis, it's easy for you to look in hindsight and without condemning law enforcement from years prior. Did we just yeah, not I, see this threat coming from a law enforcement standpoint? I, I would say yes. With all of these, it's very hard to predict. And obviously, one of the things that we work with right now is prevention is the first step. The majority of these incidents do have some type of indicator to someone in someone's life that they, they may be on a trajectory toward violence. In this case, it appears the shooter was suicidal at the time, which obviously makes it even more dangerous for, for law enforcement because. They have nothing to lose, and essentially they're out there to cause as much damage and casualties as they can. So, Dennis, how did police change after Texas Towers, and how fast? It took a while. I I would argue it's still changing depending on the the part of the country you're in. Your SWAT teams and things like that were developed not that long ago, believe it or not. And a lot of them point back to the early 80s, late 70s. So it just made it a necessity for law enforcement agencies to have special weapons and tactics teams and and to think a little bit, almost be like a red team and think about what the uh, bad guys are thinking also as far as being equipped and having the training and the knowledge and the experience to be able to deal with a situation like Texas Towers. Dennis, is there anything specifically in your training that's there just because of Texas Towers? Yeah. So He was obviously in a tower on the high ground. Law enforcement had to get to that tower to stop the threat. Different techniques that we use, one of them is called bounding and overwatch, where basically one officer or two officers advance while the other officers cover. Basically, like you're leapfrogging, gaining ground to get up to that threat itself. So I, I think that was one of the more primary tactics. And then in the tactics of searching a stairway or being safe, going up a stairway in case there's a threat, definitely is still in play today. And you mentioned before that each of these incidents are unique. Do you feel like we're going to have a fuller picture because we are seeing so many more of them now? I, I think we're always learning. <clears throat> the tactics of the the shooters change also. Mm-hmm. Uh, the shooters are students of violence and they're ultimately trying to outscore each other. So I think just like anything else, the level of violence is escalating. Therefore, law enforcement is continuing to learn, continuing to change and adapt mm-hmm. tactics to to address that.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it. Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this. Tickets that not only look, but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, Head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. Catherine, this was back in the 1960s. No such thing as social media back then, no TikToks. Thankfully. Thankfully. Was, no, no TikTok holes to go down. It was old school. So how was this shooting covered in the media? Not really anything nationally, certainly nothing on television that would come up. In the 1960s was the beginning of the news, so a short story in the news. And then basically it was covered as the Texas sniper. It was all about the shooter. And it was a magazine cover with this Texas sniper on the cover. So what would you say to media outlets is the right way to cover these shootings then? My concern about civilians not hearing about shootings is twofold. One, we know that shootings beget more shootings, so we don't want a lot of coverage on it. But when it disappears from people's consciousness, I worry about whether they'll do a good job of prevention in terms of seeing something and saying something. Right. So a fine balance is needed to be struck there by the sounds of things. I think it's also interesting that this case had such an impact on police training, but I wonder, did it have any impact on the gun laws going forward? I think this was way before people started thinking in the United States about firearms laws and limiting firearms. There's always been a certain amount of freedom with our Second Amendment, obviously, in the United States. As a historical person, I teach a class on the Second Amendment for DePaul University's College of Law. The federal or local laws that have to do with guns and controlling guns in the United States really did not come into play until into the 70s and the 80s. So really, people freely had rifles, and there really weren't changes in the laws back then, even when you thought, oh, this is a terrible shooting. It mm. kind of was viewed as a one-off. And it, it wasn't uncommon for people to have guns. It still is not uncommon in Texas. They have guns in their cars. They carry them around. But I will mm. say that the le Texas legislature eventually did pass a law 
to ensure that you could carry guns on campus because what happened is eventually there were some laws passed saying, oh, you can't have guns in schools or you can't have guns in federal facilities or you can't have guns. And Texas was concerned about being in a situation where they weren't allowed to have guns on campus in order to prevent Mm -hmm. this type of situation. So 50 years afterwards, not too many years ago, they did pass a law saying, that everybody understood that you were allowed to carry guns on campus. Of course, that's what Texas does, isn't it? More guns guns needed. They are a gun culture. There's no question about that in Texas, (laughs) even even if just in their minds. As Dennis points out, law enforcement has become more effective at dealing with these incidents. So why then are we seeing an increase in them? The that is the Gordian knot, isn't it? Um, yep. We we have more shootings, even though law enforcement is doing a better job of getting to them and stopping them. I think you have to think about the two steps. The first one is preventing the killing. We're not doing as good a job at preventing the killing. That's my answer. We can do a good job at stopping the killing, but we're not Mm -hmm. doing a good job at preventing. You know, when you think about how mental health played a role with this shooter and the stigma attached to mental health issues back in the 1960s, and then compare that to nowadays where mental health is so much more openly talked about and supported, it makes you wonder if we've actually backslid somehow. I think that Back in the 1960s, we all lived in a different environment, right? And the people lived near their office, worked near their office. A lot more people stayed home, a lot more accountability in terms of the day-to-day moments, no social media influence. Um, Mm. So your world was a lot smaller. And so when your world is a lot smaller, you can control it a little bit more and know what's going on. Inject the internet and cell phones, TikTok, and all those other things And you have more to manage and less control over it. And that includes knowing the people that you're trying to help, you know, your family, your friend, your schoolmates, your workmates. Mm. By becoming more connected, we've almost become more disconnected. Exactly. And that makes it much harder to do the prevention, which is really the whole reason that we need to talk about what did we know about a shooter beforehand or what could somebody have done potentially that might have helped to derail a person who's on a pathway to violence. So, Catherine, what can you tell me about this shooter? Well, you know, I don't use shooters' names. That's a given. I do want to tell you, when you think about a person who commits this kind of violence, are these the kind of things you think about? This shooter had a very high IQ. He was a former United States Marine. He was a university student at one point. And he started at the university in 1961. So this shooting was in 66. He had on scholarship, but he lost his scholarship because of grades. During the time he was at university, he met and married his wife, Kathleen. He struggled supposedly with grades and gambling. And again, we have more coverage about the shooter than we do the victims. You notice I didn't detail all the victims because Mm -hmm. the coverage was about the shooter. It was all about the shooter because that was fascinating. Some things don't change. Yeah, exactly. Neighbors and friends reported that he was a dutiful husband. Others said that they thought he was abusive to his wife. But he definitely was a person who could have probably gotten good grades, but he didn't, and he was failing out. So he kind of wrote his own narrative. I've said this before. I say this about a lot of shooters. They decide what their story's going to be. And then we fall into the trap of believing it. Any example of that, think about people who you uh, see a photograph of somebody who commits a horrific crime. 
and they're dressed in particular types of clothing or they've painted their face or they're wearing certain hats and then they're taking pictures of it and posting it on their social media, they're creating a narrative of who they think they want the world to see. It's not who they are. I think a great example of that is the Virginia Tech shooter. He had all these pictures he specifically took and posted and shared out to the media because he wanted everybody to think he was this tough, you know, person, badass kind of guy, but he was not. In a hundred ways, he was not. But he creates that narrative. So this guy, 56 years earlier, same thing. He creates his own narrative. He writes his suicide note. He says that people didn't help him. And I will say there was an autopsy done. Right. He did have a little tumor in his brain. There was a question. We're talking about medical care back then. We don't have the same answers today that we might have different answers today about mm-hmm. whether or not that was part of the problem. But he definitely said he had had a lot of problems that he felt he couldn't get past and nobody was helping him do that. And that's how he wrote his narrative, whether it's true or not. The mental health care was so different back then, right? And we were just really focused on ensuring that people acted and sounding like they should, and they should be normal and whatever that is. And people who didn't conform to that pattern, they weren't normal. And so in his suicide note, he wrote, I don't really understand myself these days. I am supposed to be an average, reasonable and intelligent young man. However, lately, I have been a victim of many unusual and irrational thoughts. It was much after thought that I decided to kill my wife, Kathy, tonight. I love her dearly, and she has been a fine wife to me as any man could ever hope to have. And I cannot rationally pinpoint any specific reason for doing this. Just so chilling. Yeah, Yeah. all over the place, though. He didn't know, but he's trying to write a narrative to explain. He he admits in the note that he he did talk to a, a doctor once about his mental health concerns, and, and then he gave up. And nobody around him, for whatever reason, got him any additional care. But he's recognized that he's having these impulses. Is that unusual? I will say that we've had a lot of research on people who commit violence, and they recognize that they have violent tendencies, and they just don't know what to do about it. I think that's interesting. He knows he needs to take an action to stop right. something, but that's the action he chooses. He chooses the violence versus picking up the phone and going to a doctor. Yeah, sometimes we hear in a suicide note or we'll hear it after the fact, somebody will say, they made me do it. You all Mm. made me do it. I didn't want to do it. You all made me do this. Mm. Like like, they feel they're backed into a corner because they can't get a solution that for whatever reason works for them. But then they blame everybody else. But I will say this. One of the things that I like to do with you, Sarah, is to say, Knowing what I just told you about the shooting itself, are there some things that you think, hmm, there really was evidence of this? What could somebody have seen and said? Well, I think it's interesting that there's reports of him being both a dutiful husband and reports that he abused his wife, because where did those reports come from? Who did he report them to? Did that get entered into a system somewhere? So maybe that was a moment that somebody could have flagged it up. You know, the fact that he was struggling with his grades, dropping out of school. We've talked before about those moments where you come out of high school and there's no continuity of care for these people going from teens to young adulthood. And perhaps, again, that was a moment that somebody could have done something. And then there's the gambling. That's a destructive act generally, isn't it? Who saw that? Was it his wife? And you wonder if that caused stress and tension in the marriage that escalated things. The fact that he had a tumor in his brain, did he know about the tumor or do we know if he knew about the tumor? 
We don't know. We don't have any reason to believe he knew about the tumor. It was something that the autopsy came up later. And I think he did say that he felt that there was something wrong. You know, you mentioned about how maybe people would have seen or heard or known something about gambling. Maybe people would have seen or heard something about his falling grades. And I do agree with you that, you know, somebody who's having trouble in high school, they slip off the map a lot of times and nobody's paying attention to them when they go off to college or they go off to their first job after college. And that Mm -hmm. is a big gap that we have in caring for people who have mental wellness issues. But in addition to that, this guy had to have planned this for quite a long time, even though he bought the weapon, most of them that day, he had Mm -hmm. other weapons with him and ammunition. How do you know that he planned it for, for quite a long time? When did he buy those guns? He bought several guns after he killed his wife and his mother. Right. He bought more ammunition, but he'd purchased more before that. And some of the notes that he'd written made it clear that he had been planning for for a few weeks, at least. Mm. People around him may have seen his behavioral changes. Mm. They may have seen him doing the kinds of things that we look for now, which is a change in behavior, Mm. uh, whether that's spending less time on things that you enjoy doing, spending Mm. more time at the gun range. I think in this case, he spent time out practicing but spending less time, say, maybe taking medications you should be taking or taking care of yourself physically, giving your things away, mm-hmm. which is not uncommon in people who think they're not going to come back. And of course, the fact that he bought four guns at one place, that could also have been a red flag moment, right? Yeah, he went to a couple of different places to buy different weapons, but one oh. of the spots he bought four guns, you're right. And today, there are states that have passed some laws, not a lot of them, that say you can only buy one gun a month. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you can only buy one gun at a location. And Mm -hmm. the idea is to slow down people who are maybe in an irrational state. Certainly, I would tell you that those gun stores, those owners can refuse to sell a gun to anybody for any reason. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times they do if they just feel like somebody comes in and that person just seems like they're just a little pinky looking for a gun because they want to do something, even to commit suicide, you know, uh, 47,000-ish deaths in the United States last year by firearms. Two of every three were suicide. Mm, Gosh. One of the things that was kind of disturbing, we think about how things were covered back then and how things are covered now. The shooter was actually elevated to myth status in books and movies. In I don't know if you know Harry Chapin, a songwriter, singer. In 1972, he wrote a long, long kind of boring song about literally called The Shooter and other love songs. That's what it was called, The Shooter and Other Love Songs. And he really played to how this whole narrative the shooter created that he was a victim of circumstances. And I'm going to tell you, in the same shameful way, there was this country singer, Kinky Friedman. He wrote a song. The name of the shooter was the name of the song. Kind of heartless to write a song glamorizing somebody who murdered so many people. It's just so sad that we so historically glamorized people who committed horrific acts of violence, but we definitely did it. We still do now. I mean, if you look at, for example, Netflix and even just the con artist stories, we're getting better, but there's still those stories that are told from the criminal's perspective and it shouldn't be. It should always be victim-led, in my my humble opinion. You know, I spent 20 years in the FBI and I chased people who committed bank robberies and espionage and con men and all kinds of terrible people. And, you know, we always want to know what's in their mind and why are they doing that? Why Mm. are they doing that? I respect that aspect of wanting to understand that, but don't glamorize it. 
See it how it is. So Dennis, given all of that, what's the hardest part about all of this? I would say the unpredictability of the the shooters and the incidents themselves. So they've evolved. The shooters are students of violence. They're getting more violent. They're studying tactics during these incidents. We're seeing more multiple shooters where more than one person is going in to a, a facility and, and doing a shooting. That's pretty unique. Also, it was, it was fairly rare. A lot of it's the proliferation of social media. It's constant. Something we deal with not related to active shooter. We've got basically gang wars in our area. And that's a lot of it stems from that. It's social media chatter and challenges, getting payback on someone else. And that's the unfortunate part that we deal with now. You know, so for me, I'll tell you that the hard lessons are that University of Texas, they didn't have even a permanent memorial until 33 years afterwards. We have to do a better job of taking care of our victims and survivors all the time. And so that was one thing. And I think that anybody who had a rifle was shooting at that tower. Right? But the guy who went up that tower with the police, his name is Alan Crum. He was a former tail gunner. He spent 20 years in the military in the back of a plane firing down with machine guns. He was a skilled tail gunner and, mm-hmm. and 20 years in the military. But as he climbed and he and the other police were dodging civilian shots that were raining up at him, it's kind of a future warning to good guys with a gun. You're firing at people. You don't really know. You don't really yeah. know where you're firing at. And we've seen people pull their guns out to try to fire. And not only are they at risk of being killed themselves, which we've had happen, but mm-hmm. they're at risk of killing innocent civilians too. This was a very horrible thing for Crum to go through. He was from a family in Texas. He raised his family there. Not long after the shooting, he left Texas. He never returned. Even when his son got married, he never returned. He just couldn't deal with coming back. You know, again, not taking care of victims and survivors. Gosh, the ripple effects out from one evil person's actions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's true. Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Well, after all that heavy horror, Catherine, you know I'm not going to let you leave without giving me a little sliver of hope or a story of courage that you pulled out from the Texas Tower incident. Well, I have 
this won't surprise you, two that I think I wanted to mention. One you is- You love a two. You love a two. I know. I know. I can't help it. One is that, remember I said that there were so many people taken to that one hospital, right? And since there were 30 some people taken to the hospital, nearly 40, I think, taken to the hospital, mm. all of those people were taken by others. And those were all civilians, including- those three young men who ran across the plaza and picked up that woman and her boyfriend mm. while they were being fired at, right? They made yeah. a decision to go and do that. And in the same way for Alan Crum, because this is my other one, at some point, these people decided that the risks outweighed, that the human value of life, they were going to take care of other people. I will say years and years later, I think 91, Alan Crum gave an interview. It was a very rare circumstance for him to give an interview. And he offered a little bit more detail for why he went to the tower that day. And I remember reading it and I thought, oh, I'm going to mention that. I'm going to mention that to Sarah when I talked to her. Because he said he remembered the famous story of Kitty Genovese. If you remember that, she was murdered in an alleyway, stabbed to death outside of her apartment in Queens, New York. And it was a very pivotal moment in the United States in terms of the news that covered it. It happened years ago in 1964. Not too far removed from when this happened in 19, mm-hmm. what, 1966. So 66, right. Just a couple of years later, right? A couple oh. years after the Kitty Genovese. What was relevant about that and that people know that name, especially here in the United States, mm. is according to the reports, while she was being assaulted and stabbed to death outside of her apartment in Queens, New York, dozens of people heard and witnessed what was going on. And no one called the police. <gasps> You've just given me chills all the way down my body. I think what's hopeful about that is that people know her name. Mm-hmm. When we talk about it, we talk about the victim there. And Crum said, that story stuck in my mind. He said, I just couldn't stand there. I had to go. I'm loving Crum. I know. <laughs> Dennis, have you got a message you'd like to leave the listeners with? Just for them to be prepared, be aware. Obviously, the run-hide-fight concept, it's easy to remember. That's why they did it that way. And that's essentially what occurs during an incident. And pay attention to your surroundings when you're in public. Being aware of your family and friends. Like I mentioned that the majority of these incidents, there is some type of sign that shows that person is having problems in life, whether it be for a variety of different factors. but that they may be on a trajectory towards violence also. So just being aware of what's going on around you in your family, your friends, and when you go out in public, looking for exits. How can I get out of there as quickly as I can? Catherine, what do you take away from the Texas Towers shooting? We have come so far in understanding what the problem is. Now we just have to be brave enough to execute the solutions. And before we go, we just wanted to give you a heads up about what's coming next week and why you should be subscribed to Stop the Killing podcast. Yeah, in episode two, we're going to be talking about the recent November 2021 shooting at Oxford High School. And joining us for that will be Frank DeAngelis, who was the Columbine High School principal when that shooting occurred. So he's going to bring some insight to that that I know everybody's going to love to listen to. 
Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to community podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And you'll find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stop the Killing Stories or Twitter at STK Podcast. Come and join the conversation. We'd love to hear from you. All the links are in the show notes. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it because it will happen and it will happen in places you wouldn't expect be ready for it with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mahalovic. And now each week, I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network.